Yes, if you're sitting, if you would stand, if you're standing, would you remain standing as we hear the word of the Lord from 1 Peter 4, verses 12 through 19. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed, because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious God, as we come tonight to look at your scripture, to look at your word, may we be reminded of your passionate love for us, your willingness to die that we might live and to walk in newness and awareness of that presence. God, would you go before us? Would you take these words? May they be used of you. And and God, I would pray that anything that I would say here tonight that's not from you would fall harmlessly away to the floor. But anything that is from you, that it would stick as it needs to stick, however you would see fit. Would you use this to your glory? Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. I need to start with a um, full disclosure, and uh, in, in light of transparency, I need to tell you Josh Fairball is a bit of a scumbag. <laughs> I mean, Josh Fairball. You know, he, he's, he's, he's preaching through First Peter and going perfectly in time, and so last week he preaches on First Peter 4 one to basically six, and the next four or five verses, seven to 11, are incredible verses on the love of God, the love that transforms everything, hospitality, this overwhelming great, great love that God has for us. And who gets to preach that? Does Clay Barnes get to preach that? No, he jumps right over that, and I get to do 12 to 19, suffering for Jesus. So I'm telling you, he's a little bit of a scumbag. But in reality, I am glad to be able to talk about this passage because I really believe that when it comes to suffering, we have a really weak and poor theology and understanding suffering. So what I need you to understand is that as we look at this passage in 1 Peter 4, this is actually the sixth of seven references to suffering in, in this letter of Peter. So clearly, suffering is one of the most important themes in this letter. 
the sixth of seven times, suffering for Christ. Suffering is mentioned in a variety of different ways in this letter. Um, and we're going to get to that. But for, for any guests here, or if you weren't with us from the beginning, let me give just a little bit of backstory. Uh, if you don't realize it, Peter, one of the 12, one of the original apostles, is writing to a group of friends of his. And we'll, we'll understand why we can know they're friends. He's not just writing a general letter. And he's sending it out to a group of churches that are scattered in what today we would know as modern-day Turkey. And they're a group of young Christians. They're young in the faith. They're a mixture of Gentile and Jewish. They're in a very Gentile area. Now, Peter's probably writing this a little bit before 68 AD in the death of Nero. We, we kind of know that because that ties into Peter's death. But he's writing probably after Paul's letters have been circulated a little bit because he references Paul's letters. Uh, and he makes a direct reference, and he, and he makes a subtle reference, especially to Romans and, and Corinthians and, and Galatians and, and Ephesians. And those were all written by probably around 61, 62 A.D. So we know that, that Peter is writing this probably somewhere 63, 64 A.D. And it's during this time that the persecution of this young sect that are called Christians, is beginning to intensify. And it's intensifying not only in the Roman area, but throughout the Roman Empire and into Turkey and in, into these areas. And this persecution is starting to intensify, and it's throwing them for a little bit of a loop. It, it, it's taking them off guard a little bit. And so Peter is writing to dear friends of his. And and. So we have this text, but remember, one of the things, and Josh has said this multiple times, whenever you read a text from, from any part of Scripture, you have to understand the context. Where is it in that letter? So we're reading um, 1 Peter 4, 12 to 19, but the reality is you've got to understand what's the context. And where it drops us back to is, is 1 Peter 4, 1. 1 Peter 4, 1 says this. Since therefore. And you've got to ask the question, okay, since therefore what? Remember, none of these um, verse numbers and chapter numbers and chapter titles, none of that was in this. Those were added centuries later in, in the translations. None of that's in the original. It's just a letter. So if you want to understand it, you have to kind of ask the question. So it bumps us back to, to um, 1 Peter 4, 1. Since therefore, and you go, okay, since therefore what? So you have to back up even a little bit further. 1 Peter 4, 1 says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh. Has to have been addressed somewhere earlier. And where you back up to is... 1 Peter 3.18. 1 Peter 3.18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteousness for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh. That's what 4.1 is talking about. Having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So now we come to 4.1. And Peter says, since therefore... Christ suffered in the flesh, 
arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Now, what's he talking about? The same way of thinking. Folks, this is a new way of thinking about what's coming next. It is thinking about it in the terms that Christ thought about it. Or for us, a new way of thinking, perhaps. He says, arm yourself with this new way of thinking. And then he goes through these these, uh, 4.1 to 4.11, which are a series of things to avoid, things to do. As um, Josh said last week, this isn't a new moral code that Peter's presenting. There are some things to do and some things to avoid, but it's not a new morality for these believers. It's not a sense of a new morality. It's what's the condition of your heart? It's the condition of the heart as you live as a believer in a world that may be hostile to you. And so in one four one to four six, it's kind of things you want to avoid. And in four seven to four eleven, it's things you can do, love and, and share hospitality, how you live as a believer. And then we get to this this section starting with four twelve. And I'm not a fan of subheadings in Bibles because it 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 makes you think it's a new thought. And this isn't really a new thought. This is just Peter saying, what is this new way of thinking from 4.1? What is this way of thinking that that arm yourself with the same way of thinking that Jesus had? Arm yourself with that way of thinking. So now he's simply going into another way that you arm yourself with that thinking. So we read here, 12 to 19. It was read to you earlier, but I'm going to do something a little bit strange that might be strange. I'm going to start with the last verse of our text. Because that's typically the zinger verse. And in this case, it's the zinger verse. is verse 19. And I want to start there because I want you to be able to see how important the preceding verses become when you look at the zinger verse. So, we read in verse 19. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. What? Do you mean it's God's will that we suffer? That's God's will that we suffer? Are you telling me that that's what I get to face as a believer? And it's God's will. It's not just permissive will. It's, it's God's divine will. Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will. How can Peter say this? How can he say suffering is part of God's will? So how you look at this verse, this particular verse, verse 19, is critical to your understanding of suffering. We have got to understand what the Bible tells us about suffering and what it means as a believer for suffering to happen. You you have to develop this, what I call a theology of suffering and something that we're really woeful to look at. So what I want to do, so I want to pull out four things from the preceding verses. From verses 12 to 18, we'll pull out four things that I think then enable Peter to be able to say to you and me, suffering, be able to say, those, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator. 
You know, suffering is one of those things the church is woeful at. It's woeful at teaching, and it's woeful at preaching. And I wonder if it might be because we buy into the prosperity gospel a little bit more than we want to believe we do. That, that we buy into this idea that if I do something right, if I do this stuff right and behave correctly, then I'm not going to suffer. It's not going to come to me. You see, we, we tend to have these, these two extreme views of suffering. And the first is the prosperity gospel that literally says to you, if you will obey this and if you will do this, you will have prosperity, health, and safety. It's often, there, there's a follow-up theology called dominion theology, which says that we'll ultimately have dominion over our world, and, and we will grow. And that's what prosperity gospel says, that if you will just do this, you won't face that. And therefore, if you're suffering, clearly that's a sign that you're not really a true believer. Uh, let me ask you, what does that say to my good friends right now whose nine-year-old daughter is in the sixth week of an induced coma in the ICU unit at Duke Hospital because they can't figure out what is causing her seizures. And the chances of her waking up are getting slimmer and slimmer as each day goes by. What does prosperity gospel say to that? Well, you're suffering, you as parents... Kevin and Jackie, you are suffering. Clearly, you're not trusting enough. Sadly, that's what prosperity gospel would say to them. The other side of the same coin is is this view that if I'm suffering, it is God's form of punishment to me. That, that, that somehow God is punishing because I'm I'm wayward in some way. I've gotten off of God's track. And, And because of that, God needs to punish me, and he uses suffering as a means of punishing. And and I, I go, the only way that works is if you equate suffering with, with punishment. And so I would challenge you that that's simply another iteration of prosperity gospel. It's still prosperity gospel. If you just act right, if you just do right, somehow you're not going to suffer. And you're not going to struggle. And you're not going to face this. If you just kind of do this right. Well, so my challenge to us tonight is if those aren't biblical responses, then then what is? How can Peter come to this conclusion that suffering can be and often is in God's will? And in the midst of suffering, we are to give our soul to the care of a creator God. What what frames that theology of suffering? What enables us to understand that suffering? Well, I think it is in, the next, in those verses that precede 19. For you see, understanding the role of suffering as a believer, what it means to suffer, is a key ingredient to understanding this book, this letter of Peter, and much of the New Testament. Much of the New Testament. Now, it's important to note there are different kinds of suffering. And I don't want to overlook that. There is suffering that we experience due to, say, a bodily illness. And you can suffer physically, emotionally, or spiritually, or all three together if you're dealing with a chronic or even an acute bodily illness. 
You could have a mental illness. You could struggle with a biological depression. And you can struggle and suffer with that much of your life. There's that kind of suffering. There's also a kind of suffering that comes from grief. When you've lost a loved one. Or you've lost something that you really love. And you grieve. That that can create suffering. You can suffer when you're in relationships that are broken. Family or friendship relationships that are broken in some way. You can suffer and and, and face that kind of, of intense anguish in your soul. All of those are valid suffering. You can also suffer, which Peter's going to point out, for, for poor choices that we make. We can suffer that way as well. And, and we'll get to that in a minute. But clearly here in 1 Peter, he's really referring to a kind of suffering that we would call persecution or suffering for living the gospel. For, for, for living this gospel out in a world that is somewhat hostile to gospel, we're going to suffer in some ways. And that's the kind of suffering that we're going to talk about tonight. So as, as mentioned, suffering is without a doubt a key theme to this letter. And it's one of the key things to understanding what it means to live as, as a believer. So look back at the beginning of this part. Verse 12. He starts with this word, beloved. Now, the NIV translates that as dear friends, and that's not dear John, dear, it's my dear friends. Peter clearly knows these people, and he cares deeply for them. So the uh, ESV translated as beloved, my beloved friends. It's interesting that There are two times in the book of Peter, in this first Peter, that he uses the term beloved. And both of them are in the context of suffering. Both of them are in passages of of suffering. In in chapter 2, we read this, Beloved, my dear, dear friends, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh with which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak as e- against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds. So here in verse 12, he says, Beloved, my dear, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. I want you to see two words. It's going to be our point one here. I want you to see two key words out of this. And the first is the word surprised. Don't be surprised. This is the second time Peter uses this word in, in this fourth chapter. In, 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 four verse, in chapter 4, verse 4, he, he's talking about the people are going to be surprised because you're living a godly life. They're surprised that they're not engaging with you, as, as uh, Josh said last week, in the debauchery, in the flood of debauchery. So they're surprised that they're not engaging with you. Well, here he flips it over and he says, I don't want you believers to be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised by the fiery trial that you're doing. You know, through the centuries, the Hebrew nation faced persecution and they faced suffering. For them, it was second nature. But for the Gentile believers... 
suffering was new for them. This idea of suffering for Jesus was new and it, it was kind of dangerous for them. They're, 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 they're kind of going, what is going on here? It, it, it is a new and trying experience that they are now suffering because of the fact that they're believers. And, and, and Peter acknowledges this. Hey, don't be surprised when the fiery trials come upon you to test you. And then the second word, don't think it strange or as though something strange were happening to you. Folks, suffering is not strange. In fact, it aligns perfectly with Jesus' own predictions to his followers. Jesus says in John 15, verse 20, he says, Remember the word that I said to you? A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. In John 16, 33, Jesus said, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. Not you may. You will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. And then in the next chapter when Jesus is praying for his disciples, he says this. He's praying to God. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. And then listen to this. I do not ask that you take them out of the world. I am not asking that you take their suffering away. I'm not asking that you remove the suffering. What I am asking is that you protect them from the evil one, from the evil one who's going to kind of warp their understanding of suffering and it's going to warp their thinking that suffering must be punishment from God and it must be if, if I'm doing something wrong, I'm suffering. That's what I'm asking you, my God, my Father, to protect them from. Not protect them from the suffering, but to protect them in the midst of suffering from the evil one who's going to twist their theology of suffering and mix it completely up. I love that. There's no attempt by Peter to, to diminish the evil in some suffering. No attempt. What Peter is doing is he's offering a chance for the people to re-image their suffering. Notice I didn't say re-imagine, but to re-image it. Imagine as though it might just be there or not be there. No, no. Re-image that suffering. Peter is about to offer them a chance to restructure and rethink what it means to suffer. He creates this, this re-imaging of their own suffering so that will allow them to see the suffering as an advantage. Hear that. that that's an odd one. As an advantage and perhaps their perspective will change and thus their thinking of suffering will change. That's what we're going to look at. Each passage in First Peter, about suffering, does this. The author, Peter, wants people to re-image what it means to suffer. To encourage each of them to look at suffering for what it is. So the first point is this. We are not to be surprised or to think that it's strange when suffering comes. As believers, we are going to suffer in some ways. So let's not think about it as something strange. 
so that, or that it's a surprise to us. Secondly, the second point, verse 13. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. Do what? Rejoice. Rejoice in the fact that not only is it not a surprise, not only is it not strange, but as believers you can actually rejoice in the sufferings of Christ. Now, this is not in some masochistic way. This is not, okay, come on, suffering, take your best shot. Come on, go ahead. I need to suffer for Jesus. And, and so, go ahead, bring it on. I'm going to suffer. That's not what Peter's talking about. And, and notice here that, well we'll, well, we'll come to that. I just, this is so important that you see that the rejoicing is a re-imaging of the suffering itself. It's a re-imaging, and this, it's a key thing is that now, as you re-image it, you're going to receive a new perspective of suffering. And that suffering, rather than tied to your circumstances, are now tied to Christ. And especially His return. Especially His return in glory. And it's a key theme throughout this book. It's a key theme throughout the New Testament. Listen to this from Jesus, Luke 6. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you. How's it sound like right now? Are you pretty excited about being a believer? <laughs> Blessed are you when people hate you, exclude you, revile you, spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. Do you hear the connection? It, it rejoice because you're identifying with Jesus and the reward is so much beyond that. Hebrews 10, the author of Hebrews says it this way, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those who are so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Do you hear it? It's a re-imaging of suffering. It, it, it's not taking suffering away. It, it's not saying it's not happening. It's a re-imaging of it. James says it this way. Count it all joy, my brothers and my sisters, when you meet various trials and, and various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So Peter says in verse 13, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering. And here's the key. Here's, here, here's the subtle difference. I want you to notice that Peter did not say you rejoice in your sufferings. Did you hear that? We're not rejoicing in our sufferings. We're rejoicing in our shared sufferings in Christ. 
Now, that may sound subtle, but it's hugely different because rejoicing in my suffering is about me and where I am and what's going on, the, the, the how, the when, the, the, the where of my suffering. Peter's saying, no, we're going to re-image that and refocus that. You can rejoice because you are sharing in Christ's sufferings. Paul says it a similar way in Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he says, I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Not the fellowship of sufferings. The fellowship of sharing in his sufferings. Do you hear that? It's, it's subtly but hugely different. So we're not saying that the, the second point isn't that you rejoice in suffering. The second point is you rejoice in sharing in the suffering of Christ. It's a re-imaging of that. A refocus of that. The, the ESV right here, this is one of those places the ESV does not do a real good job in translating. When it says rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's suffering, that you may also rejoice and be glad. What Peter's doing is a literary, t- he's putting two verbs side by side that both mean the same thing. In English, which the ESV kind of does here, it's rejoice and be glad. They both mean joy, so it's joy plus joy. The NIV actually translates this better when the NIV says, rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Joy plus joy equals overjoyed. Not just joy and joy or joy and be glad. No, when you rejoice in sufferings, in sharing in those sufferings with Christ, you will be over-rejoicing, overjoyed in that suffering has now been changed and is shared in the glory of Christ. Wow. Think about that. We can be overjoyed. So we rejoice when we are identified with Christ in suffering. We're overjoyed. So Peter continues to develop this theology of suffering in the very next verse, in verse 14. And he says this, If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rest on you. I want to ask you, do you think, is it possible that Peter's remembering when he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, is, is he remembering 30 years before that? Where on a mountain, just a few months into this ministry, just a few months into deciding, I'm going to go all in with this strange itinerant preacher. I'm all in. I'm going all in. Just a few months later on a mountaintop, he's sitting with this rabbi and some of his buddies. And the rabbi says this, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice, be overjoyed for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Do you think he's remembering that some 30 years later and trying to encourage this young group of believers scattered? Hey, you can rejoice in your suffering for Christ now because you're going to be overjoyed when he is revealed at his second coming or when you've departed and gone to be with him. 
How is that for re-imaging suffering? Peter uses, uh, in this letter, he, he, he tells believers that, that they're blessed twice. Two times in this letter, he says, you are blessed. Both times are in the context of suffering. He's re-imaging the suffering for them. Re-imaging for them. People, we're not abandoned when we suffer. When, when, when we're facing that suffering, or as one mystic said, that dark night of the soul, when, when every bit, every fiber in our body is saying, where are you, God? Why have you abandoned me? Every fiber of us is crying out that God still has not abandoned us. That's what Peter's saying. In the midst of this, when you are reviled, if you're insulted, you are blessed because the spirit of the glory and the spirit of God is upon you. God is with you in that suffering. God is with my friends Kevin and Jackie right now and their nine-year-old daughter Peyton in ways I don't have a clue. I believe God is with Peyton in a way that I don't understand. I don't, but God is there. God is present to them. And so the third point that I want to make, first point, let's not be surprised or think it's strange that we're suffering. The second point is we rejoice, not that we're suffering, we rejoice in the fact of our suffering. And third, we're actually blessed when we suffer for Christ. Not only do we rejoice, but we're actually blessed. And then before he ends up with the zinger, before he ends up with that zinger point in verse 19, he wants to make sure that, he, that he's clear with these guys. He's saying, now let me be clear about the suffering here. I'm not talking about if you're suffering because you're a murderer or you're a thief, kind of that criminal stuff. Or then he, he kind of ends with this odd word, or you're a meddler. I like that word. You know that that word appears only one time in the New Testament and only one time in all ancient Greek literature. It's here. You can't find that word anywhere else in Greek literature, in ancient Greek literature. Because Peter has taken two words and he's made one. He's made up a word. And it's made up from two words, one meaning to meddle and one meaning to spy. And he's put them together. So some translations will translate it uh, as a meddler. Some will translate it as a spy. Some will translate it as an infiltrator. Doesn't matter, it's just an odd word. But if you're suffering because you're meddling in somebody else's business, no, 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 that's not the suffering I'm talking about here. Guys, I'm talking about suffering that you're facing because you're living as authentic believers in a world that's hostile. So Peter gets back to his main point and he ends these last, with these last two verses and he asks a rhetorical question. He says, if the righteous are barely saved, then what about the world? He, he, it's a rhetorical question where you can fill in the gap. The righteous are saved not because of anything they do. If they're barely saved, what that means is there's nothing we do. It's not a matter of a new morality. It's not a matter of acting right. It, it's not there. If they're barely saved, then what about the non-believer? Just to be clear, we're suffering again, not because you're 
a Christian, you're suffering because you're living as a believer. And you're living in this world. So the fourth point is this, that you read in these last few verses. It is God's suffering can be God's judgment, but not judgment as in condemnation that the world faces. It's judgment in Christ, which is exoneration. You see, Christ suffered. We're sharing in that suffering. You read Isaiah 53, and he's just the horrible suffering. And God caused his son to suffer so that we wouldn't face that. So, though it's judgment, it's judgment for the church is exoneration. Judgment for the world is condemnation. So the fourth point in re-imaging suffering is suffering is part of God's judgment that focuses me on the exoneration that happens in Christ. Does that make sense? So we're re-imaging. Last thing I want to say is this. What, what Peter says there is, if you don't, I, I, I love, I, I want to read this one quote. It's from Matthew Henry. He's writing in the early 1700s. He says, it's the duty of Christians in all their distresses to look more to the keeping of their souls than the preserving of their bodies. If suffering from outside, if suffering produces uneasiness, vexations, sinful or tormenting passions within, the soul is the greatest sufferer. If the soul not be well kept, persecution will drive people to apostasy. See, if we don't re-image suffering, suffering can drive people to walk away from the faith. And Peter is saying this to his friends. Dear friends, let's re-image this. You are suffering, but it's not suffering for suffering's sake. You're engaging in the suffering of Jesus. And in that, you will see glory. Let's pray. God in heaven, may we re-image suffering to recognize, God, that we can not be surprised, not think it's strange, but we can actually rejoice that you count us worthy to suffer as Christ, that we are blessed when we suffer for being believers And that your judgment is one of exoneration and not condemnation. Lord, may we be reminded of that. And Lord, as we have an opportunity to give back to you, may we be reminded that this is all yours. Whether we're doing really well or whether we're struggling, it's all yours. So would you take the offering that we have today? Would you use it to your glory? Through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.